I was at the UN when um, Trump was elected president. And that was a profound day. There was not one dry eye in the house, and all of our eyes were a deep beet red. Not just for the immediate loss, but for those who knew it was frightening what was going to come. In the United States, with the death of George Floyd, really was a thunderbolt through the world. And New York was no less shook than any other place. I remember so distinctly talking to my mother on the phone on the steps of her home in Brooklyn. And in the background, you just hear this chant of no justice, no peace. And she was describing this scene. This woman who I'm so grateful still draws breath today, but bore witness to the horrific uh, existence of uh, races in uh, southern Mississippi as a civil rights worker to be able to give testimony. And, and, and she's saying to me, these aren't just a few protesters in the street, bio. They're coming and coming and coming. This is different. It was profound. And I understood that, uh, no, this is going to recall for a different response. Calendar and uh, yes, I am a resident in Stockholm, Sweden, originally from New York, Brooklyn, in fact. And uh, it's been a long road that has gotten me here. I am an international human rights attorney. I'm also a mediator, a leadership coach, and a facilitator. I have worked with a spectrum of humanity on a variety of different issues, working. Uh, to advocate on behalf of people who are often quite voiceless and don't have a presence where they need to, um, but where power and influence um, are definitely uh, dominating and impacting the quality of their lives. I come from a background of social activists, and so it's a bit in the blood. So is teaching. And so along the way, um, with all these different credentials and experiences, I've been able to engage with a number of different people, learn a number of different things, and at the same time, have been able to reflect a lot on what does this mean for me in my role in the human family? 
I've always been organized and, and, and focused in my thinking to think about the betterment of others and of humanity, because I have a role in that. And having grown up with that and that kind of social engagement, I look at my neighborhood, I think about my childhood, which was extraordinarily diverse. And when I find myself in circles, which is often, being one of the onlys, one of the first, it, it's dismaying because it has been an incredible experience to have so much diversity, uh, a rich uh, array of perspective and thoughts and accents and smells and interests and cultural contributions that one can appreciate. And that even though it can be overwhelming, I suppose, in fact, I find it enriching to be overwhelmed by the plenty as opposed to being underwhelmed by the homogene uh, homogeneity of just one perspective. Part of what my, my travel, part of my journey um, has had to deal with functioning as a as a highly educated black woman who's able to articulate a number of different things and, and, and provide critical analysis and has a very straightforward uh, attitude and engagement with people and, and really loves people and at the same time seeks a level of honesty and truth and quality and, and meaningfulness in that engagement. These are things that are important to me and have navigated my role in the career choices and places and avenues that have opened up to me. In looking at the role of advocating and engaging with people, it's something that I thrive um, on. The difference of perspective is quite rich, and it actually makes the overall decision-making uh, deeper, uh, fuller, more well-thought out. I grew up in a single-parent household where uh, a, a black female, single female, with two children who worked multiple jobs, and I had to take on the leadership of home life very, very early in life. I realized a number of different things. One is that children understand a lot of things a lot earlier than you think they do, and that they can rise to the occasion. But also putting that leadership uh, responsibility on my shoulders allowed me to really grow in ways that made me prepared to be in um, particular uh, avenues. Uh, and, and offices and having certain experiences that I otherwise would not have had um, been able to either endure or to even just have access to. Recognizing the various issues that people across humanity are facing, one of the things that I developed um, on this road is something called the anti-racist global citizen. 
it's a facilitation tool to help organizations manage the conversation when it comes to racism. Racism isn't new to me as a black woman coming in uh, and, and looking in different areas to develop myself professionally. And when a black woman walks into the room as a potential candidate, she's not just a woman. She is black. What does her hair look like? What kind of clothes is she wearing? Uh, not familiar in those features. And all a litany of different kinds of judgments and biases start to come into play when I come into the room. It's important when I talk and, and deal with uh, diversity and inclusion issues and with this particular tool, it's important that we talk about what we see in the room. Often we function with a level, and we think that it's good to function with a level of blindness. That we don't see any of those things. Let's not know any of those things about this person when we are considering this particular candidate. And I think that it's important to recognize that it's the difference that we need to celebrate. And you do need to see this person for all of who they are. Age, disability, motherhood status, sexual orientation, religion, huh? Your race and your ethnicity. Who you are is very important in the room, and we have to start to get comfortable with what that looks like and to see the whole person and address our different biases that exist. So the tool that I developed helps facilitate that conversation. It helps us do some deep reflection because when someone looks often in the room, they see somebody that's different, there's a reaction. Oh, that is not familiar to me. But here's the question coming back to you. Why is that your reaction? And why don't you come now and think a little bit further with us to figure out where is that coming from? Where does that stem from? Often it stems from family mythologies, cultural mythologies about what that other looks like. And it's important that we are aware of these biases that we carry around. Now, people will term it an unconscious bias. But sometimes, and in some places, and if you ask me, and if you ask other black women who are in this world trying to navigate a professional uh, career and uh, getting access to, to, to develop it, you will find that actually we talk about unconscious bias. But if you ask black women who are similarly situated, looking to advance their professional career, you will know that, in fact, that bias is not so unconscious. And so maybe our first level of what we need to deal with is that conscious, active bias. You know, because racism is real rude. It's very impolite. And when we attach this idea of unconscious bias, it's this consideration as if, oh, this is under a cloud of politeness that someone wouldn't necessarily readily understand or discern is negatively affecting them because I'm carrying some baggage and some perceptions and presumptions. But uh, I don't know. If we're tapping into our humanity, if we're tapping into that person, that humanity, not just who that person is in their component parts that you need to categorize, but as a whole person, that whole person has feelings, has ability to think, can empathize, 
and can infer your messaging about the fit, about what's appropriate, what looks a certain way. And so the work of dealing with the conscious and the unconscious bias requires us to do a lot of deep reflection um, and to begin to question what we know uh, in addition to perhaps even asking us or asking ourselves, what is it that we don't know? I find in organizational development and very important that uh, the shape of the culture is actually, uh, that's structured by the leadership. When an organization is ready to make a shift, to make a transformation, it's a wonderful thing. But if it's not um, been signed on by the leadership, this in fact uh, will be a failure. It will be one more in vain attempt to window dress a very long-standing and well-established issue, a challenge to people, much less organizations. But it's really at the leadership that we can begin the process of readying, readying the organ, the body, the corpus to change. And that's just the beginning part of it. That's the initiative. But here's where a lot of organizations tend to fail, and that is in actually this, um, sustaining this effort. Uh, finally, you've set up a diversity and inclusion uh, process, and I've been a part of this very much. Uh, you know, the person is welcomed in, you know, and you are on the team. And then you're left alone. Here's this uh, manager who has never really had anybody that, quote, was different than what was familiar to them now on their team. And they think, well, this person will just fall in with how the team operates with all the presumption that they know those rules and all those unwritten rules attached to that. Um, and then you have this person who's the first or the only, and they're trying to navigate to stay. Uh, they are trying to find their way without really anyone in any form of support to keep them going. And it's very easy. You can ask a leader in an organization. It's very easy to feel isolated. Everybody's coming to you for answers. You're expected to know. What if you don't know? And so strong leaders also have or carry humility with them that will allow them to say, this is an area that I'm not so familiar with, but it's something that I would like to be a part of what we stand for. It's a part of our DNA. And I need some external influence to come in to help facilitate this. It takes a really strong leader to know when they can need to step aside. And it's wonderful. And that's the kind of client and kind of people that I would want to talk to. thoughts are coming on again They're hitting hard and I'm all alone within And I won't ask for more Oh, I'm sure, but oh We come together and it's all gone For a
if you are still questioning whether or not their racism exists or why you should care, I would say that you're not ready. Um, and maybe you also need to do some just beginning reading and, you know, concerning yourself with, again, the human family. I think that COVID-19 has let us know how small our world is, how closely linked we are. Um, and I know that there have been indigenous populations, different groups of people who talk about the relationship of humans to earth, to each other. And it gets dismissed. Part of my experience has been, um, especially with a background that's dealing with human rights, gender and diversity and inclusion, many times people's eyes just glaze over. They're not interested in this conversation. And I hate to say it, and I hate for it to be so that it was in the wake of George Floyd's death that the world was shook to its core to such an extent that finally the shame, the embarrassment, the rudeness, the, the pain of having to suffer and navigate through, but in hostile territory, so biased, so unchecked, so unreflected, um, that people were saying no more. And what for me as an American was astounding is the fact that um, it wasn't just an American problem. This issue resonated throughout the world because no matter what we want to say about it, pain is pain. And discomfort and racism is just that. It comes in different forms. It manifests itself in certain ways. But at the end of the day, all I know is that I stand on the outside. And there are a lot more unwritten rules and checklists that I have to check off before I get, quote, approved. I think it's exciting at this moment, at, during all of this pain, though, that we have an opportunity to recalibrate that process that we can go forward and with, again, this readiness, come to the table, some ready to shake some of their cultural mythologies and understandings and be open to new information. And I have to say that for the black community, and I mean this in the capital B, uh, black community, which is not about a literal color. It is about a collective group of people who through history and as a part of the, the movement, the human movement and, and the diaspora, uh, regardless of where we geographically come from, there's a shared experience. Um, slavery, of course, stands right in the middle of that. And that is a hard uh, nut to crack because people will have to face some of the ugly parts of what this is. Um, and that's everyone. And at the same time for black community to also know itself because that's been a part of the intention as well as to disassociate so that you don't feel a sense of, of, of worth. Um, an underlying component of this and it also has played a great deal in terms of my own path are the power structures um, that are at play when it comes to black women trying to enter into the professional world. I remember at one point in time um, the, the, a person taking my CV and remarking how you know well credentialed I was, and they wanted to present it to somebody who actually was a leader, a white male, a leader of a, the gender section of a very big organization. But he warned me. He says, um, "Truth be told, you're a little 
too well credentialed. This person doesn't have a third of what you have in terms of experience, yet they're at the top of the food chain as it relates to this in this big organization, and they may feel threatened by your presence. And sure enough, even though I tried to pursue this person with a, a level of poli uh, being polite and, you know, approach and not just taking the first no or the silence as um, an answer, ultimately I did get the message, which was that he was never going to reach out to me. We were never going to talk. And so these are a part of, that's a part of the struggle that happens when you have non-traditional candidates. And I hate to even say non-traditional. I'm a newcomer to Sweden. And there have been people who have been here who have been born here or practically born here, you know, within the first few months they, they've been in Sweden. They've grown up. They know the language. They know the culture, or so they think. And yet they, too, feel very much on the outside. There is this unwritten set of rules, and there, are an, there is an additional checklist that comes um, with that non-traditional candidate. And in Sweden, I would expect now the, the non-traditional may look different, but actually what we are talking about is a non-white Swede. So when we say a Swedish person, we mean a blonde, white, Swedish person, multi-generational. Hmm? And that's someone who actually has national identity, who's been born here. Maybe it's only one generation, perhaps two or three. But there's a lot of heaviness and in, uh, influence in our words that we use, and it's telling us another story, right? Oh, this person is Swedish, but they're not Swedish, Swedish. Hmm? This person is American, but they're not like, you know, but where are you really from? And speaking of which, I'll talk a little bit about my name, because I think it also tells the story uh, a little bit in terms of that perspective. My first name uh, is a proper uh, Nigerian Yoruban name, named uh, because my parents, who are from Washington, D.C., and the Bronx, New York, were very proud of their African heritage, but were not directly Nigerian. Um, and in fact, on my mother's side, we can trace back our roots because of the slave trade, uh, 13 generations. Um, so I'm more American than more, uh, most Americans. However, if you looked at my first name, you would assume certain things. And if you looked at my last name, it's a proper Scottish name. Contributed by, again, the slave trade. <laughs> but when someone says, oh, are you Scottish? No, <laughs> I'm not Scottish. And it's about people beginning to really understand that we didn't just pop on the planet, that there is a connection here. There is a historical uh, relationship of why we are in the places that we are at this po point in time. And it's an appreciation of those different paths and those different people that are, again, a part of this human family that we can get to an area or a, a, a conversation that has the energy of cooperation of inclusion, of bringing someone on board, and you're willing to give up a little bit of space and allowing for somebody else to give their expression. Um, and these kinds of things are a beautiful thing um, that I have had that experience. I think people would desire that. I think organizations who haven't had that experience maybe don't know what they're missing and have to be brave enough to want to give it a try. I don't imagine any organization that is a uh, going concern that would like to be profit-making could 
put a, 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 have a blind eye towards this idea of what diversity and inclusion looks like. The demographics of Sweden has changed, and uh, in fact, at the same time, there's a lot of people who are looking for talent, and there's a lot of talented women, especially, uh, and I will speak to, the, to black women because that is part of my population. Um, I was very surprised uh, when I first came here. I lived in Rinkeby. And uh, I have to tell you, as a girl from Brooklyn, I was uh, impressed in different ways. <laughs> in some ways, it felt very much like home. And I always laugh when people say, well, be careful, because this is a dangerous kind of thing. I'm like, these are my people, huh? Um, but I, Rinkeby also gave me, as an outsider, a view about what works in Sweden and what doesn't work. And I think that my experience has really uh, also been an experience of people being very enthusiastic in the wording, very enthusiastic in the presentation of them saying, yes, we're for this, and this is a really good idea, and I will support you, and this is a place for you. But very, very weak in the follow-through, in the intention, and in the true action of doing the work that it takes to not only bring that difference in, but to keep it sustainable. Um, maybe they're challenged by um, their own perspectives. I think that largely it is an unreflected kind of decision that doesn't understand it's not more work, it's just different work. And that at its core, it is valued because it makes it, 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 it matters to the organization. Do you see what I see? Is it as beautiful to you as it is to me? What I see, I can't say. It feels like a long time without you, I'm fine. It feels like a long time since we spoke. Well, it's been a Yeah, you know, it has not always been hard. I would say that there have been times when people have been able to see my brilliance, been able to see the talent that I can bring to an organization and has helped sponsor the path to make it happen. Because, you know, it's not just letting someone know about a job announcement because we know that that's not how this works. It's actually walking that person's candidacy through the door, you know, to the person that you know who's a decision maker. It says, this is on the pile of people that you need to look at. Um, and I found that also as one of the big struggles in Sweden as well is because actually when I started to look at the network of who knew who, right, because it's all about who you know, you can't seem to come through the front door, I realized that people had, you know, they grew up together, they were school friends, you know, ex-girlfriends, you know, family members. It's like, is there no one here that you don't know intimately? Um, business is about risk. And I mean, you know, we all like to have certain assurances. But we also need to get out of our bubble and get into the life. Uh, Stockholm is an international hub. I'm expecting big perspective big things, broad and open engagement. 
And when I, uh, one of the impressions I had very much early on was that it was quite insular. In close, and I was thinking, you know, Sweden enjoys quite a reputation externally as an open, viable place. I had a vision. I have a vision. It's been revived, truth be told. Because I came with energy and thinking, this is the place where I will help facilitate conversations and difficult conversations that maybe in other places around the world, it's not safe for them to have. And then I realized, even internally, things aren't exactly as they seem. And there's work to be done in Sweden. I think that the moment is a wonderful moment, even with all this crisis, that we can turn things around, that we can begin the process of recalibrating um, the conversation, that we can start to learn some things, because we've been operating with a lot of ignorance. And that if we come with words, to borrow a phrase from a young uh, student, with words of love in our mouth, even when we are navigating this very difficult path of talking about race and seeing that whole person, um, and that we may make a mistake, if it's coming with words of love in your mouth, it comes out differently than when it stems from anything that is hostile hateful, distrusting. And I'm hoping and I'm hopeful uh, for not only Sweden, but really for the world in terms of being able to tap into its humanity and to begin to change things around. It behooves all of us to want to do this. No one's going back anywhere. We're here. And there's talent that's right in your face that you're missing. I've been here, and it's been difficult to get seen. Even someone told me, with your credentials and, and you're struggling uh, to get seen, I don't have a, a, a chance in hell. And I felt like, okay, this is ridiculous. I mean, I'm, I think that I bring a lot, and I'm confident in that. But there's other people who are also uh, brilliantly uh, able to do these things, and they're getting overlooked. And when senior managers look around, look around at your boards, look at your senior management team, if everyone looks the same, you should be concerned. It shouldn't be comfortable that you're standing in your um, homogeneity. You should want to have something. And I know part of the resistance is that it's a power-sharing discussion. It's also that you may hear a different voice that doesn't agree. And yes, it's difficult to hear something that's a little bit different. But when we go through that and when we are open to it, we are so much richer for the knowledge. And so um, when someone is brave enough, strong enough, daring enough, <laughs> then I think that uh, it, can, it can be a wonderful thing. And so I stand hopeful. And I, and I also stand as testimony that as I have been able to get my voice out, people have responded. And I had to say to people, uh, some people in Sweden, you know, I didn't even know that you existed because I, I felt that that was what existed. And then I was getting kind of another reality. But indeed, they're there. And I think they're good people everywhere. I think that they're, I really do think that they're good people everywhere. I think that people aren't brave enough and that good people don't stand out enough or aren't loud enough in standing in resistance. But I think with courage, with learning, and a readiness to learn, we can go a lot of different places.